Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Karen Velez, Associate Professor of History at McAllister College and winner of the Best First Book in the History of Religions Award. She's here to speak to us about her book, The Miraculous Flying House of Loretto, Spreading Catholicism in the Early Modern World, published with Princeton University Press. Uh, congratulations, Karen, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. So this was a really uh, interesting topic. Uh, the, the, the subject matter you cover uh, really kind of grips you and brings you in, and you take this, uh, this innovative approach. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just start us off a little bit about how this project started to emerge for you. Uh, where does it fit into uh, the types of questions uh, that you're interested in answering? And what were some of the, the broader conceptual interventions you were hoping to make with the book? Great. Yeah, thanks. This this is a project that took me um, many years, and I came to it in a very kind of roundabout way. <laughs> I was very interested in miracles uh, in Christianity, and I came across the story of the Flying House of Loretto, um, which is the house of the Virgin Mary reportedly carried away from the Holy Land by angels in the 1290s and deposited on a coastal hilltop in Italy. So that miracle account intrigued me, but what actually really drew me beyond that was that Jesuits uh, were fascinated by this miracle as well. And in general, um, people tend to associate Jesuits with being more prosaic and practical in the spectrum of Catholic missionaries. But they actually liked the idea of Loretto so much that they ended up creating replica holy houses in a later period in the 1600s and carrying them to missions all over the world. And I was mystified by that. I just didn't quite understand why the Jesuits would do that. Um, and that drew me to answering um, the bigger question of how does Catholicism move? Why do people choose to move it? And how does it move to new places and take root? So originally when I started this project, I thought I would find a handful of Jesuits who very deliberately had a plan to move Loretto <laughs> to missions that they named after Loretto. And I looked at three different missions, Lorette among the Huron in Canada, Loretto among the Mojos people in Bolivia, and Loretto Concho, which was in Baja California among the Monqui. And I didn't find that at all. Actually, um, I found that the Jesuits who did end up rebuilding Loretto holy houses and naming missions after Loretto did not have some kind of organized plan. And actually, uh, part of the mechanism that moved the devotion was <laughs> kind of um, rogue and spontaneous and serendipitous. There was no master plan. And that's where the book was born. Now, this myth in the central is really interesting, and I, I could see why you would be captivated by it to, to find out more. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of just the background we would know need to know to understand this a little bit better if we're not familiar with Christianity? So who were these communities of Christians that were upholding this narrative myth? Who were the subjects that were spreading it? What was going on at this time that they would be going to these various locations? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the difficulties of studying this particular miracle account is that I think historians tend to want to pin it on a particular time and place. For instance, Jesuits in the 1600s. <laughs> and I can tell you a little bit about each of those communities, but um, one of the interesting things about Loretto is that it involved a lot of different time periods and a lot of support. So it's many different communities. It was very kind of collaborative and cross time and cross region. So the Jesuit missionaries um, were my lead and kind of entry point to this. I was using a lot of their accounts and sources to study this. And 
they are or were in the 17th century a relatively new group of Catholic missionaries who um, had a strong agenda to spread Catholicism overseas. So they tended to travel to the farthest frontiers, the most dangerous zones, really wanting to convert people. Loretto in Italy is associated with a shrine that is kind of obviously a much older Christianity. So I would classify the Christians who were working at that shrine as kind of older Christians. Then you have these Jesuit missionaries who are actually trained in teaching Christianity, who are kind of middle Christians. But um, the most interesting activity to me around Loretto were the new Christians. Um, uh, The populations that I was looking at were indigenous communities on the frontier who were being introduced to Christianity for the first time and who really found aspects of the Holy House of Loretto and the Virgin Mary to be very appealing. So the Jesuits introduce it and teach it, but the real energy comes from these newer populations who actually then end up contributing to the miracle of Loretto. And they're not easy to find in the historical record because they're not named. Like the Jesuit missionaries are all named and credited with it, but the people who are actually carrying forward the devotion are new. And just to give one kind of concrete example of that, the mission of Lorette among the Huron in Canada was a specific group of um, Huron refugees who actually had initially converted to Christianity near in the Great Lakes in the St. Marie Mission. And then because of warfare, ended up fleeing that site. They fled about 800 miles to Quebec City, resettled on the outskirts of Quebec City. And the Jesuits built a new mission there to Loretto. And for those Huron, they had actually converted to Christianity in their lifetime (laughs) and heard the story of Loretto from the Jesuit missionaries, but then took pride in um, this mission being named after Loretto and carried it with them to new branches of the Loretto mission. Uh, these case studies really flesh out your approach, which I think is one, one of the appealing things about your book. Um, and you use this structure where you have a, a juxtaposition of this narrative feature alongside uh, a more historical context and then kind of a synthesis. And so can you tell us a little bit about this framing? Uh, how does this approach help you you analyze your subjects? Thanks for that question. Basically, in my book, I felt like I wanted to um, showcase the methodology and the difficulty of trying to decipher miracle accounts because they do kind of resist historicization um, in a particular way, (laughs) Um, partly because they're additive. So if you freeze them at a particular moment, they might sound irrelevant, abstract, difficult to believe. (laughs) But what gives them their power over time is actually that they have additive layers of people's personal experience with a narrative and new interpretations. So what I was trying to do with each chapter of the book was to show that, um, to actually start with the narrative and then show the different layers that were being added onto it by people's lived experience and demonstrate, again, um, not just the history of the Flying House of Loretto and how that helped to spread Catholicism, but also just a way of doing history and understanding miracle accounts. And I feel like at this particular moment in time, it's especially relevant, partly because the additive layers of the Loretto's story tend to be tied to people who were moving refugee communities, stories that were carried from one place to another. And particularly in 2020 with pandemic and climate change, people are are moving (laughs) a lot. And in their wake, I feel like we're going to get a lot more stories that sound like the miracle of Loretto, right? Houses must and will 
fly. <laughs> and our histories are actually, what I mean by that is that our histories are going to look a lot more like these miracle accounts, which right now people don't really know how to read or understand how to read because they're presented as ahistorical. They're presented as validated only by belief instead of by true historical experience. And there's a way to actually study and understand miracle as history that I was trying to showcase in my book. Yeah. And this uh, I really appreciated from the book. I think part of the success of the book is uh, both the synthesis of previous scholarship, but then this kind of advancement of, of new interpretive strategies. So could you outline these these new paths you've taken in relation to what previous scholarship has done? How might we think about this in, in kind of broader context, these interpretive strategies you you outline? For each chapter that I outline in the book, what I was trying to do is not just show the layering, but actually specifically counter particular ways that historians have looked at this in the past. And just to give an example of one of them, a lot of times when historians approach Catholicism, just the history of Catholicism in general, they tend to look for a political agenda right? It's like a wizard behind the scrim. There is a Jesuit who believed in Loretto and he transmitted it to other people. So they want to um, tie it to a particular person who had a specific political agenda, not even necessarily a religious and spiritual agenda, but like a political ability to profit from it. And so rather than describing the history of this <laughs> in that way, there were certain chapters where I was trying to counter pinning it on a single Jesuit author. For instance, the Jesuit who brought the replica holy house to the mission of Lorette in Canada had a very interesting <laughs> past, but the chapter in which I talk about him, instead of crediting him with like actually bringing Lorette to the Huron single-handedly, I discuss him in a chapter on accidental pilgrims, where I'm actually trying to highlight that far from being kind of this deliberate Machiavellian author who wanted to profit from this... <laughs> He came to Loretto in a very roundabout, weird way himself. He was a runaway as a child who joined the Jesuit order late, and he had this miraculous encounter at the Shrine of Loretto in Italy that sort of inspired him to take a vow to remember her wherever he ended up. And he ended up in Canada with this community of Huron refugees. In the chapter on accidental pilgrims, I talk about Pierre Chamonot, the Jesuit, and his experience as a pilgrim. Uh, kind of an accidental pilgrim who ended up in Loretto by coincidence. <laughs> I compare his experience to that of one of the um, Huron refugees, a man called Ignace Sahuenhui. That particular Ignace um, ended up running away from the Great Lakes region and kind of having various encounters with Christianity that solidified his fate. But it was very serendipitous. <laughs> As with Pierre Chamonot, there wasn't a lot of kind of deliberate authorship or, again, the word that I keep thinking of is Machiavellian, right? <laughs> um, a particular person who says, I will deliberately spread Loretto so I will profit from it. No, these are both uh, men who came at it through pilgrimage in this very organic way and in a very voluntary way. And that counters the way that historians usually tell the story. And it also counters a lot of interpretations that we have about Catholicism, that it spread largely through sinister indoctrination or only by the sword or only when there was great force behind it. It actually highlights this kind of um, area of voluntary participation a category that is difficult to describe with traditional intellectual analysis <laughs> and that requires a layering. So to get back to the question that you'd originally asked me about how I actually set it up in the book, again, with chapters like Accidental Pilgrims, I'm trying to offset old patterns of how we talk about um, the transmission of Christianity by highlighting the overlap and associations and parallels between people from different regions, from different 
times from different types of experience with Christianity and showing that that overlap is actually part of how Christianity spread. Yeah, and you do that really well in some of the other areas of the book where you, you kind of highlight the idea of this kind of reception um, and you talk about it in this idea of pairings and you've mentioned this idea of this kind of additive type of property uh, where you're looking at kind of the, the outcomes of the introduction of the myth and this associated uh, devotional practices within these new contexts. Can can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that this tradition made room for communal creativity and devotional accumulation? How was the spread of Catholicism uh, fostered by uh, local participation and, and enthusiasm? Yeah, I like how you talk about it as um, devotional accumulation. <laughs> Because I think that describes really well sort of um, what I was trying to get at here with the spread of the Loretto devotion. One um, case study that I use in the book is actually Marian imagery. The icon of the Virgin of Loretto is a black Madonna statue. She's housed in the shrine in Italy. What I was trying to look at when I discussed that image is not just how it changes, but how that particular image of the Madonna of Loretto accumulates different layers. <laughs> so it's not just that black statue, but um, there's a lot of devotional artwork that's associated with the Madonna of Loretto. And in a lot of the paintings and um, images that were carried to the new world she's actually she goes from a 3d statue that's uh, dark to um, a white madonna that's kind of a standard painting of mary and then in addition to just that media change you get this phenomena in frontier missions of a lot of women who are actually seeing this imagery and also being named after mary And so I was making an argument in that chapter that some of these new converts and women who were named Mary were actually contributing to the image of Mary or her public image by their actions and often their self-conscious and deliberate repetition of things that they saw in images. And the example that I give in one of the chapters is Marie Sauante, who was one of the converts at the Mission of Lorette in Canada. And the Jesuits describe her giving a speech on her doorstep. And their description of the speech very much calls to mind a famous painting of the Madonna of Loretto that was done in Italy by the famous artist um, Caravaggio. And he drew the Madonna of Loretto standing on the threshold of a house, barefoot and kind of leaving that domestic space. And... I think a lot of times people consider different art media separately and (laughs) privilege particular representations over others. But the beauty of the mytho history of Loretto is that actually for many people, the way they experienced this was um, as many different images layered one on top of the other. So for their experience of Catholicism, they would not necessarily have distinguished between a black statue of Mary, a white painting of Mary, Huron woman called Mary. All of those were Mary. All of those contributed to the way they felt about the Virgin Mary um, as she moved through the world and as she was represented. So I was trying to, again, skirt a lot of the um, analytical categories that we impose as, as scholars to get at that kind of lived religious experience of how people encountered particular aspects of the devotion of Loretto, the Virgin Mary, the flying house, the litany (laughs) of Loretto, um, how people encountered different aspects of it and experienced it really as something that had power by association. Now, there's obviously a lot more to the book, so listeners will have to go out and 
and get a copy and, and read through. But I'm wondering if you have any kind of final takeaways that you might want to offer for folks in the broader study of religion. How, how might they benefit from your work, uh, either in applying your conclusions or your methodologies, or what, what might you want them to, to know about the book? Yeah, I guess a couple of different things. The first, the, the most important one to me would actually just be this kind of collaborative dimension to religion, um, that there's a lot of unofficial, unlicensed, unacknowledged, unsolicited participation <laughs> from people who aren't Jesuit missionaries um, and uh, who aren't uh, super well-trained. And that actually contributes to Catholicism um, in ways that make religion look a lot more like Wikipedia than we usually acknowledge, right? You actually have a lot of kind of rogue contributors who are uh, contributing to how religion spreads and how it grows and transforms. Um, so that's the first part. And this, this, the second takeaway would just be that, again, um, the miracle of the flying house of Loretto is a very beautiful thing with this whole idea of the angels carrying the holy house and depositing it in Italy. But I would just say it's kind of interesting to me still in 2020 that angels are sometimes easier for us to imagine than what actually happened. So today, I think we have a lot of skepticism about voluntary participation or the idea that religions might spread partly because uh, there was an appeal to it or certain people actually really did resonate with it. Right. Um, I kind of feel like that has gotten lost in a lot of recent scholarship that has emphasized the violence, the top down imposition of religion. And I don't want to say that that never happened or that that area of study is not important because it is. But um, it has so overshadowed scholarship lately that people haven't been giving voice to this other idea of voluntary participation being key to the survival and spread of a religion. Well, it's really a, a very interesting book, and I hope it'll be widely read. And congratulations on the award. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.